Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. World War I is history's first global war. Millions of soldiers from over 100 nations fought and died, and billions were affected. It shattered the old world order and created a new one, and its outcome was decided by its battles, which were the largest that had ever been seen and introduced terrifying new weapons. Welcome to the key battles of World War I podcast, where we dive deep into the battles that decided the fate of humanity. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode seven in our Key Battles of World War I series. We are at Key Battle 3. And we're going to be moving away from the Western Front, where we were at in previous episodes. We're going to the Eastern Front, but not where Germany and Russia were fighting. We're going to be looking at the Ottoman Empire. And this is the only episode we're really going to be focusing on the Ottoman Empire, because this is such a significant battle, the Battle of Gallipoli. So, James, um, why don't you kick us off here, and then I'll take it from here for the rest of the episode, just because, you know, I like the Ottoman Empire. Um, But uh, start us off, James. So what are the circumstances for the Ottoman Empire or Turkey, if you prefer? You know, we'll be using those interchangeably. What are the conditions of them entering the war? All right. Well, Turkey, a.k.a. the Ottoman Empire, I'll probably say Turkey most of the time just to save time, but... uh, but uh, believe me, listeners, we know the differences. <laughs> As you know, Scott has spent many years studying the Ottoman Empire. He's a scholar in that field. I'm no scholar on the Ottomans, but I, I did study them quite a bit in grad school because my concentration was on Eastern Europe, particularly the Balkans. And obviously they influenced that just a little bit. Yeah, they were just a smidge important in their history. But uh, so Turkey starts out not really on either side officially, but. They had been wooed by Germany for many years prior to the war, and many German military and civilian advisors had been working in Turkey, and so they had quite a few Muslims, didn't they, Scott? Yeah, that was a long-term plan, I think, for Germany to get into the great game of colonialization. Um, at, about, at that time in history, if we're looking at the late 19th, early 20th centuries, about a third of the world's Muslim population lived under some degree of control of the British Empire. And Germany was trying to make inroads. So in 1898, Kaiser Wilhelm went to Damascus and called himself a Teutonic Saladin. German railroad engineers uh, helped build the Berlin to Baghdad Railway and the railway from Damascus to Medina. They weren't completed before the war, but Britain saw this as a potential threat to India, potentially. So anyway, Germany has major inroads into the Ottoman Empire. This has been going on for decades. They were providing them technical assistance, military assistance, uh, how funding, weapons, all sorts of things. So there was a lot of open up. They really did. And I found a great quote. This is the American ambassador to Turkey, 
after he visited Turkish coastal defenses, he wrote this. He said, quote, my first impression was that I was in Germany. The officers were practically all Germans and everywhere Germans were building buttresses with sacks of sand and in other ways strengthening the emplacements. So yeah, tremendous amount of German influence. You had German officers, German generals running a lot of the military preparations. So there wasn't a lot of doubt about what side Turkey or the Ottomans would come in on it. There wasn't really much of a chance they were going to go against Germany. Plus, they had a long history of conflict with Russia. There are so many <laughs> Russo-Turkish wars. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, gosh. We, I mean, you could do a whole series just on that, but, but we won't. We're <laughs> going to stick to the point and, and keep it short and sweet, as short and sweet as we can. So on August 2nd, 1914, the Turks joined the Central Powers via a secret treaty, but they did not immediately join the fighting. Right. And the Ottoman Empire's experience in World War I was difficult. They had just concluded two disastrous Balkan wars, so their resources had been decimated. Their infrastructure, which already wasn't good compared to Western Europe and made troop transport from one side of the empire to the, another difficult, was now almost impossible. And later on in the war, the Ottomans are fighting the Russians in Europe from 1916 to 1917. They're fighting Romania. They're fighting Macedonia uh, on the side of the Germans. Um, and apart from victories in Gallipoli and, and Kut al-Amara, uh, the Ottoman armies really didn't have much to show in the battlefields. Uh, they're overrun by the Russian armies until a revolution broke out in 1917 and by British forces until the end of the war. So... Germany hopes that they'll be a client state that will hold off the Russians, but the Ottomans aren't super excited about this war, but it's, it's sort of out of necessity, so they don't get into it until later on. Yeah, and another way that they prepared was to try to build up their navy somewhat. Uh, they had ordered and paid for two battleships to be built in Great Britain. This is actually before the war started. And so these battleships are in the process of being built. But when Britain learned that Turkey had joined the Central Powers, they simply confiscated the ships. They said, <laughs> oh, they're ours. Sorry, too bad. Uh, in fact, and I, I learned recently that Winston Churchill was behind that. It's not surprising. We're going to mention Churchill quite a bit. But Churchill was at this time the... Uh, the first sea lord, I'm sorry, the first lord of the admiralty. It's very confusing because the the first lord of the admiralty is basically kind of like our secretary of the Navy. He's the civilian government official in charge of the Navy. His second in command is the first sea lord. So, <laughs> so it gets a little confusing. But anyway, so Churchill orders that these uh, battleships just be confiscated and they're going to become British ships. But the Germans said, oh, that's no problem. We've got a couple of extra ones. And so what they did was they they sailed two ships of their own, which were being pursued by French and British ships. But these two battleships, German battleships, were called the Geben and the Breslau. They sailed them to Constantinople, and then they just handed them over to the Turkish Navy. Uh, it's interesting because I read that the the crew was still German, but they put on Turkish outfits. They wore fezes and everything. <laughs> and they flew the Turkish flag. And before long, these ships went into the Black Sea and they were shelling Russian ports, including Sevastopol and Odessa, among others. Uh, the Russians did not appreciate that one little bit. Now, Grand Duke Nicholas was uh, the overall commander of the Russian army at this time, not to be confused with Tsar Nicholas. Tsar Nicholas, of course, is the emperor. He's the head of the entire country or the nation, the empire. Grand Duke Nicholas is a relative of his, and he's the head of the army at this point. He realized, uh-oh, we've got a, a new enemy on our southern front now. Not not a new enemy, a new old enemy. They, they've been fighting for hundreds of years, but but they hadn't fought all that recently. And now uh, Russia realizes that if Turkey joins the war on the side of the Germans and the Austrians, we have a major problem now because they have so many areas where they touch and uh, there's going to be a problem. So Russia needs help. So he wants somebody to put pressure on the Turks to, to occupy them so that they're not throwing everything they have at Russia. So he appeals to Britain Grand Duke Nicholas does, and in October, the Allies declared war on Turkey. And now I'm going to turn it over to Scott. Scott's going to drive the bus, and I will just be the color commentator. <laughs> All, right. All right, the crowded uh, Turkish Istanbul city bus. Um, 
So let's talk about specifically the Battle of Gallipoli. What were the war aims of different sides? A lot of this had to do with geography, uh, specifically the Dardanelles, which were straits that connected Constantinople to the Mediterranean. As James likes to do a mental map, I'll attempt my own here. And you have the Black Sea, which is um, modern-day Ukraine to the north, the Caucasus to the east, and Eastern Europe to the west. Then you have the Aegean Sea, which uh, connects to the Mediterranean Sea. But what separates the two, they're connected by water, but they're connected by a strait of water, the Bosphorus Strait, which runs right through the city of Istanbul. And then there are different waterways below that, the Sea of Marmara. And then the Dardanelles is another waterway that ultimately leads out to the Aegean. Russia wanted this. If they could have captured this, they would have had a warm water port. The Dardanelles have been strategic since time immemorial. Uh, Xerxes, the Persian emperor, crossed it with a pontoon bridge. And one-third of Russian exports went through the Dardanelles, and they had wanted to control that or the Bosphorus Straits for centuries. Going back at least to the time of Catherine the Great, she had what was called the Greek Plan or Greek Project, which was advanced in the 1780s, and she envisioned a partition of the Ottoman Empire between the Russian and Habsburg empires with the restoration of the Eastern Roman Empire in Constantinople. And Russia was patronizing Orthodox Christians in the Ottoman Empire and offering some Russian citizenship at this time. So there were plans like this for a long time. Uh, Great Britain was in opposition to Russia. They were competitors throughout the 19th century. And before 1914, it tried to hinder Russia's access to the Dardanelles. That was part of the reason the Crimean War was fought in the 1850s. But with World War I, now that they were allies, they changed policies and offered the Russians Constantinople as a post-war prize. This was a major strategic aim of Russia in the war. What the Ottoman Empire wanted to do was launch an attack on Russia through the Caucasus, this mountain range that's in between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. This goal was to retake uh, cities in what is today eastern Turkey, Artvin, Ardahan, Kars, and the port of Batum. All of these used to be part of the Ottoman Empire, but they were lost in the 1870s to Russia in one of those many Russo-Turkish wars. Uh, so the head of the Ottoman War Ministry, Ismail Enver, hoped a successful attack would open the route to the Caucasus and hopefully trigger a revolt among Caucasian Muslims. Another Turkish or German aim was to cut Russian access to its uh, oil resources around the Caspian Sea. Well, it failed, as many Ottoman battles do at this time for the Ottoman Empire. Half the Ottoman soldiers froze to death. Many more were killed. Only about 13% of the attacking force survived. And it finally ended in the Battle of Sardikamish, which was a huge victory for Russia. Uh, Russian forces counterattacked and crossed into eastern Turkey. And they were welcomed by some as liberators because there was a large historical Armenian population in that part of Anatolia. And this will set the stage later, um, later that year, in fact, for the Armenian genocide um, due to a number of reasons we can't possibly get into here. But Ottomans suspected the Armenians were loyal to the Russians and not to them. Some Armenians were. Some wanted their own nation. Others were loyal to the Ottomans, but we won't get into that. So Ottoman forces also attacked the Suez Canal. And on November 14th, the sultan at this time declared jihad or holy war and called Muslims around the world to unite under British rule to rise up in rebellion. And very, very few did. Um, don't think of Osama bin Laden at this time causing for universal jihad against the West. By this time, the, the sultan, which used to be the head of state in the Ottoman Empire, he was basically a neutered ceremonial figurehead, figurehead ever since the 1908 military coup. And the idea of political Islam, the way that someone like Osama bin Laden practiced it, wasn't really a thing as much back then. So his he was sort of the figurehead, like the caliph, the spiritual leader of Sunni Muslims, but very few people listened to him. Okay, so here's the plan for Gallipoli. The Ottomans had closed the Dardanelles. Oh, can I say something? Oh, please, yes. Just an interesting thing. I find it interesting how the British completely reversed their policy. You know, war makes strange <laughs> bed bedfellows. I mean, they had been enemies with Russia for quite a long time. I mean, they even fought them in a war, for crying out loud, you know, back in 1854, the Crimean War. And, but now, uh, I, they, they even, one thing I didn't think about earlier is they, they signed a secret treaty. I can't remember at what point this was, but basically 
they were going to carve up the Ottoman Empire, not totally, but uh, it would have been much smaller. And the British were going to let Russia have Constantinople and a good chunk of the European part of Turkey, if not all of it. I can't remember exactly how much, but I do remember they were going to give Constantinople to the Russians so that the Russians could have a that warm water port that they'd always wanted. And I, I'm I'm thankful to this day. You know, I, as an Orthodox Christian, I'm glad the Russians didn't get a hold of the Hagia <laughs> Sophia, you know, because I could just see them later dynamining it. Uh, when the communists took over, like they did a lot of the churches in in Russia, that would have been that would have been a disaster. Ironically, the you know Agia Sophia, which is considered by some to be the the main church of Orthodox Christianity, uh, it survived by remaining under Turkish rule. Oh yes, welcome to the grand paradox of uh, Turkish uh, religious relations in the Ottoman Empire, which is what I studied. Yeah, they make some money off of it now. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, I mean, war makes strange bedfellows, and I'm sure there are young men uh, going off to war on behalf of the British, telling their grandfathers that they're going to fight and be allied with the Russians, and he's looking at them skunk-eyed because he lost a leg in the Crimean War from the Russians. So, Right, yeah, it's like, you're going to ally with who? What? <laughs> um, okay, so with the plan for Gallipoli, the Ottomans closed the Dardanelles, so Russia had communication difficulties. The Black Sea fleet of Russia was bottled up. They couldn't access the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. The Allies wanted to open the Dardanelles and open a second front against Austria and take Constantinople, and with a decisive attack, could completely knock the Ottomans out of the war. Oh, uh, that sounds really easy. To, yeah. How easy could that be? <laughs> oh, yeah, those, whatever. I mean, their, their army is backwards. You know, the Ottomans, psh, no problem. And um, what also what British wanted was with a direct line to the Russian Navy in the Black Sea, then you could have the supply of communications to Russian forces in the east, and you could facilitate cooperation between the sides. Hey, Russia, you need help on the eastern front? Okay, can we provide you ammunition, troops, other things? And the Allies were also competing with the Central Powers for support in the Balkans, and the British hoped that victory against the Ottomans would persuade um, one or all of the neutral states of Greece and Bulgaria and Romania to join the war on the Allied side. Um, and also they thought that perhaps a, um, a powerful Allied fleet going toward the heart of the Ottoman Empire in Istanbul or Constantinople uh, could trigger a coup d'etat in Constantinople, and then they would completely leave the uh, Central Powers Alliance altogether. So to do this, the Allies need to get a foothold in Turkey near the Dardanelles, and the Gallipoli Peninsula was chosen. So they came up with a plan in which Allied soldiers would be landed at Gallipoli. After they gained control of the peninsula, they'd march to Constantinople and seize control of it. One of the British leaders who championed the plan was our friend Winston Churchill, as James explained, the first lord of the Admiralty. <laughs> So his plan was that he would engage the Russians on the Eastern Front and bombarding Russian ports and sealing off the Dardanelles. Allied generals and politicians uh, expected that the Operation Gallipoli could be over in a matter of days. And a quote from Churchill, which did not stand the test of time in history, is, A good army of 50,000 men and sea power, that is the end of the Turkish menace. So I think it's going to work. What do you think, James? Oh, I don't know. There's a lot of hubris <laughs> on the part of the British, man. I tell you, they, they're they going to find that maybe the Turks aren't quite as wimpy as they thought they were. Especially not one Turk who um, I almost feel like I want to cue up music because I'm introducing a world historical figure to you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, first leader of the Turkish Republic, the great reformer, the hero of the Turkish War of Independence. But he rises to superstardom in the Battle of Gallipoli. Every time you mention his name, Scott, I'm going to go bum, 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 bum. <laughs> there you go, theme music. I mean, he could be a drinking game theme, but I don't know how he'll figure in outside. If I'm trying to bring him up in the Battle of the Somme, that's going to seem a little bit gratuitous. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's going to come up maybe a little in when we toward the very end of the course. But I mean, the course, the the series, but. Uh, not much other than this episode and that. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, Kemal, I'll, I'll call it, well, Ataturk was a ceremonial name given. At this time, he was known as Mustafa Kemal. I'll just call him Kemal. And he was a colonel at this time. He didn't have full command of the Gallipoli campaign. Of course not. But what he does plays an absolutely vital role in victory. So I'm going to start with him. And he had experience against fighting the Bulgarians in the Balkan Wars. And he was strategizing what to do against the Allied plan. Uh, He had strong opinions about its defense. His fellow staff officers thought that any enemy could be prevented from landing on the peninsula with enough barbed wire defenses on shore. But Kamal argued that any enemy could land under cover of naval fire, like Churchill thought, and it'd be the task of the defense to tackle him after he'd done so from defensive positions inland. So he said that you may have as many barbed wire defenses as you like, but I can easily break them to pieces and land. And if I don't find superior forces to stop my advance on land, I can very well occupy the peninsula. This wasn't based on military theory. This was based on his fighting during the Tripolitanian campaign. Uh, when the Italians had landed their troops under the cover of naval fire and making short defense by the Ottomans impossible. So Kamal was a military veteran at this point. He'd fought numerous losing wars. So he knew about the inherent tactical power of naval bombardment, which the rest of the Ottoman staff had to learn by harsh practical experience. So before the Allies arrived, the Ottomans laid many mines in the Dardanelles, and the British sent minesweepers to remove as many as possible. Uh, The minesweepers faced fire from coastal forts as well as a strong opposing current. On February 19, 1915, five British and three French battlecruisers attempted to force the straits or pass through it by bombarding the Turkish shore forts, but they called off the attack due to bad weather. And many of the ships that the British supplied to this campaign were nearly obsolete. They resumed the attack on the 25th, and soon they had the outer Turkish forts in ruins, The inner forts, however, remained strong. On March 18th, the Allied fleet, which now had another 18 battleships, launched another attack. They were confronted by strong Ottoman shore batteries and mines in the straits. Uh, The British minesweepers had missed these. Three ships were sunk and three more were damaged. So the naval attack alerted Ottoman ground troops of the attack, and the Allies lost the element of surprise. Ottoman reinforcements were then sent to Gallipoli, and they entrenched under the leadership of the German general Liman von Sanders and Mustafa Kemal. On April 15, 1915, the first Allied landings began. Uh, the French and British forces landed at Cape Helles on the southern tip of the peninsula, and Australian and New Zealand, or Anzac as they're referred to collectively, soldiers assaulted what's now called Anzac Cove further to the north. 
the overall commander was General Sir Ian Hamilton. And we'll mention this later, but this um, the Battle of Gallipoli is a foundational moment in Australian and New Zealand history. Uh, there's actually a movie from the 80s with Mel Gibson in it called Gallipoli. Have you seen that, James? I haven't seen that. Yes, I did see it very recently, part of my preparation for this. Okay, is it good? Do you recommend it? Let me table that discussion if that's okay. okay. I want to mention it at the very end. Okay, that's fair. All right, we'll get back to that. Oh, by the way, I forgot. Bum, 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 bum. You mentioned <laughs> Mustafa Kemal again. There's our man. There's our man. I'm a little late. Well, he has so many quotes. There are the moments of this battle live on in Turkish lore. If you go to a Turkish public school, you study these moments. There's a university nearby called March 18th University on the day when the Allies arrive. So this is a sacred moment in the hearts of the Turkish people. Uh, so the Anzac assault was especially bloody. Um, they face a brutal counterattack led by Mustafa Kemal. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> the Turks had Maxim guns and they pour down fire on the soldiers. Yeah, uh, those are, in case our listeners don't know what a Maxim gun is, it's a machine gun and they're, they're they fire like I don't know, 600 rounds a minute or something. They're incredibly powerful. The, the British hadn't really faced anything like that before, at least not. Well, no, they had on the Western Front, but uh, a lot of these guys were pretty new to battle. They were new troops, new soldiers, and they hadn't seen a lot of combat. And also, well, another thing I should mention is um, what led up to that first heavy clash is there were Ottoman outposts that spotted the Anzac forces and were retreating. And Mustafa Kemal said to the retreating soldiers, he said later, whether by logic or instinct, he told them, you cannot run away from the enemy. They protested and said, our ammunition is finished. He said, you have your bayonets. And he commanded them to fix bayonets and lie down on the ground. He sent an officer back to instruct his own infantrymen to come up with a double together with an all available gunners from the mountain battery. He observed, when our men lay down, the enemy lay down. This was the moment of time that we gained. So this is the, the leading up to that moment. Uh, so due to confused orders and a lack of a sense of urgency and confusion in general, the Allies lost their chance to establish extended beachheads, and they were stranded near the beaches. Ottoman soldiers fired down upon the invaders from highly elevated and fortified positions. They forced the Allies to dig in. So there was a Western Front-like situation that prevailed, trenches, which uh, many of which you can still see today. Uh, on April 30th, uh, Mustafa Kemal issued this famous order. <laughs> Here's what he said. Every soldier who fights here with me must realize that he is in honor bound not to retreat one step. Let me remind you all, if you want to rest, there may be no rest for our whole nation throughout eternity. I'm sure that all our comrades agree to this, and they will show no signs of fatigue until the enemy is finally hurled into the sea. So that quote is on buildings, it's on government buildings, it's everywhere. I mean, you could not find more pictures of Ataturk in Turkey than Joseph Stalin in early 1950s Soviet Russia. I am not exaggerating people. He's really the king of the inspirational quote, isn't he? <laughs> I'm not ordering you to fight, I'm ordering you to die. And that thing about Stalin, I didn't say that. One of my professors who's Russian said when he went to Turkey, he felt like he was in the middle of a Soviet-era communist parade. And he grew up <laughs> in the Soviet Union. So wow. um, that's from the horse's mouth, people. Um, one journalist wrote, men had lost arms and legs, brains oozed out of shattered skulls and lungs, shattered skulls, and lungs protruded from riven chests. Many had lost their faces and were unrecognizable to their friends. Like the Western Front, due to poor hygiene, dysentery broke out. And this was during the summer, which it's very hot down there at the time. Clean water was scarce. Flies were everywhere. Corpses were rotting. And only 30% of British casualties came through the battle. And we'll get into numbers later, but this is very bloody. That's, yes, 70% of them died of disease or some other thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe they didn't have the field hospitals, so worse on the Western Front, if you can imagine that. Mm -hmm. uh, in August, there were new landings with 63,000 soldiers carried out at Suvla Bay. These landings were designed to help the Anzac forces break out of their stalemate. They pushed the Ottomans back and even took the high ground at Chunuk Bear. At one point, British naval guns fired on British soldiers due to them not knowing who where their soldiers were. But then there was a breakout on August 10th when who but Mustafa Kemal uh, <laughs> uh, 
He led a counterattack and pushed the British soldiers back. Then uh, Allied soldiers became stuck on the western side of the peninsula again. The British High Command fired the British commander, Sir Ian Hamilton, on October 16th and replaced him with Sir Charles Monroe. On December 7th, the Allies quietly began removing troops, and by January 9th, 1916, they were all gone. So the evacuation went well with no casualties. That was at least one part of it that went well. Well, one last thing I want to mention is um, that uh, a quote from Mustafa Kemal is, um, I can't remember if I mentioned this, but he essentially said to um, soldiers trying to, on April 30th, is that, I am not ordering you to fight. I am ordering you to die, to, die, yeah. to stick in retrench forces. So they had terrible losses, but... Uh, this is one of the few cases uh, where the Ottomans are able to be successful in the war. Uh, before I get into the results, anything you want to add to all this, James? Yeah, it was interesting. I realized later after I put together these notes that the British war minister, who's basically the equivalent of the Secretary of Defense in the United States, he's the overall civilian head of all the military forces between the prime minister and the actual army and Navy commanders, uh, Lord Kitchener. Uh, Kitchener actually was an active duty still officer. He was a field marshal, uh, which is the equivalent roughly of a five-star general in our military. But uh, Kitchener actually went to Gallipoli to take in the situation himself because he'd heard a lot of conflicting reports and he heard that things weren't going well. And once he got there, he he decided we got to get out of here. You know that we've got to. Uh, this is just a disaster. Nothing will be accomplished by staying any longer. So he made the decision to evacuate. And that was actually going against the advice of some of the commanders on the spot. Some of the, not Hamilton, but uh, Hamilton's subordinates actually hmm. wanted to stay and try to fight it out. But Kitchener said, no, that's that's it. And another thing that's interesting, you talked about the heat earlier, but by November, I was watching this documentary uh, this morning, actually, and by November, blizzards had set in. So it got really, really cold. There were 16,000 cases of frostbite among the Allied soldiers. And 300 Allied soldiers died from the cold. So, I mean, these poor guys went through everything, every horrible experience you could imagine, pretty much. All they needed was a hurricane to, <laughs> just to really put the cherry on the Sunday, right? But but it's just I think of all those people just sweating and, and just roasting in the heat and getting all these diseases that are generally known in hot areas and then later getting frostbite, too. It's, it was just it was just a disaster. Yeah, I think in this case, the Ottomans, many of the, the soldiers are from rural areas, whether Anatolia or the Balkans, um, some of them ethnic Turks, some of them Albanians and uh, other groups as well. A lot of them grew up in the mountains, so they knew extreme cold. Others were at lower plains, and they'd have to encounter severe heat or malaria. So they're sort of like the Confederacy, and that apologists for the Confederacy will say, well, you know, they're tough and rugged and can handle the heat in a way a Union boy can't, and they're worth five Union soldiers and all that. So I don't know, Confederacy of the World War I? Uh, is that what the Ottomans are? I guess, I, I don't know if that theory will hold or not, but I guess we'll see, won't we, James? Uh, maybe so. I mean, they certainly they certainly were could say they were defending their homeland against invaders. That, that's one analogy I see there. And they defeated a, a numerically superior and and in other in, superior in other ways opponent, a technologically superior. Mm-hmm. So you know they fought hard, just like the Confederate Army did in the first several years of the war. Well, just to give you a few numbers, um, the battle involved one million men on both sides. The Allied casualties were 302,000, many of disease like we discussed, including 142,000 fatalities. Scott, I got to correct that. I'm sorry. I I changed the notes. Uh, It's actually 58,000 killed. I'm not sure where I got the 144,000. I checked two or three places. I mean, nobody knows for sure that you have to remember, listeners, that all of these casualty figures are very approximate because... So many bodies are just never found. People just seem to disappear. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think more more reliable sources would say 58,000 killed. That's still a ton. Right. And it, I mean, it's similar on the Ottoman side. There were 250,000 casualties and 57,000 fatalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the fallout, Winston Churchill was blamed for the disaster. Uh, took many more than 50,000 soldiers. 
Uh, he lost his position in the government, and fans of Churchill will know that this is the beginning of his wilderness years. Uh, so before he returns to government and before he assumes a position of leadership within the British government, uh, he spends a very long time out of power. It's not well into the 1930s where he yeah. assumes a role. Well, he, he does. I think he makes his way back into the government toward the end of this war. I'm not 100 percent sure. I'll double check that. But I do know that he goes and joins the army. He actually takes a field commission as a major and he actually serves on the Western Front. That was something I didn't know before I started doing research for this series. I think he worked his way up to colonel, and he he did a good job from from everything I've been able to uh, find out. Right. Yeah. So there's always the stink of defeat around you from the beginning, but he did his part later on. Uh, So for what this means symbolically, uh, the Battle of Gallipoli means a lot symbolically to both sides. The Anzac soldiers took 62% of casualties, but um, for them, the assault is seen as the birth of an independent existence of Australia and New Zealand. to this day, thousands of tourists from Australia and New Zealand still come to Turkey, still visit the site of the Battle of Gallipoli. Uh, Anzac Day on April 25th is celebrated in Australia and New Zealand. And you know what? I think this calls for another uh, quote from Mustafa Kemal Atatürk about... <laughs> he has some very kind words to say about the battle afterwards, years after the Battle of Gallipoli. And here's what he's speaking to the tens of thousands of uh, Anzac troops buried there. Those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives, you are now lying in the soil of a friendly country. Therefore, rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Mehmets to us where they live side by side here in this country of ours. You, the mothers who sent their sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they have become our sons as well. So look at that. He's quite the diplomat and statesman, don't you say, wouldn't you think? That is really nice of him. I mean, I think it's a credit to the Turkish government that to this day they still have, they've maintained the cemetery. I mean, they didn't have to do that. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't. I mean, there's uh, always, some people follow the pathway of revenge and um, wasn't like a, I don't know, a reconstruction sort of thing after the Civil War. Um, Yeah, and that was um, not to get too stuck on Mustafa Kemal, but in the 1920s and 1930s when he was president, he really pushed uh, isolation and did not want Turkey as a young nation to get entangled in any foreign affairs. Um, And speaking of Turkey, they saw the defeat of the Allied invasion as a defining moment in the birth of modern Turkey. Modern Turkey, I mean, it doesn't become a nation until well after the war. They fight a war of independence against um, mostly Greeks who were backed by different allies uh, and become an independent nation in 1923. And it was Mustafa Kemal Ataturk who led the Turkish War of Independence, and he became Turkey's first president, and he architected its turn away from um, a—I mean, I wouldn't call the Ottoman Empire a theocracy. It was a reforming state that had significant religious overtones, and turned it into a completely secular republic. Hey, everyone. Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, Ataturk, he's like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams all rolled into one. He is... A big deal in Turkey. I just I, I can't stress that enough. Uh, and then the Straits would stay closed. Uh, I think it would be uh, for the rest of the war, and well until eventually the um, at some point the British are able to reach um, and occupy Constantinople. But that comes much later. That's when Russia is yeah, very very end. That's when Russia is out of the war. Um, so they don't occupy it. Which um, yeah, that's does have a big change on things. And uh, the Ottomans remain inactive, belligerent. They are not knocked out of the war. And one other thing, too, is if you visit the site of Gallipoli, um, unlike the trenches of the Western Front that were plowed under by farmers soon after the war, many of the trenches in Gallipoli are intact. Um, It's pretty barren and bleak soil there. No one really wants to occupy it. So if you want to see what a trench looks like, that's a good place to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll jump in here and talk about the movie the movie, I think it's 1981, 1980-81, Mel Gibson. It's one of his earliest movies. I like it. It's a good movie. It doesn't really have tons and tons of combat scenes in it. And very, I feel like less than half of it actually is the battle of itself. It, it has a lot of preliminary things where it's it half of it's set in australia and they talk about the conflicts that young men have about whether to sign up or whether not to sign up and all that but uh talks about their lives but it's definitely worth watching but what i would like to even more heavily recommend is there's a tv series it's a seven-part series that was produced in australia it's an australian show and as of today when i'm speaking this is June 10th, 2020, who knows how long this will last, but at least right now you can watch it for free if you have Amazon Prime and it's just called Gallipoli. So kind of confusing. You'll mix it up, might mix it up with the movie, but this it's much longer. It's seven episodes and each episode is about 45 minutes long and they really do get into the battle. You, you feel like you're there. It, it is an amazing series and Kamal, of course, Mustafa Kamal, bomb, blah, blah, bomb, is a major, he's a major character in there. And they show him giving the, the speech about the, the one that you quoted earlier that ends in saying, I'm not telling you, I'm not ordering you to fight. I'm ordering you to die. And, and it shows quite a bit of the war from the Turkish perspective as well. So it's very, very highly recommended. I guess seven times 45 minutes. What would that be? A, uh, several hours, but uh, definitely worth watching if you really want to get a good idea of what it was like to be at the Battle of Gallipoli. And it, it shows it from the common soldier's perspective as well as from the general's perspective. They talk about Hamilton, and Hamilton's a major character, and some of his conflicts with some of his generals. Some of his subordinate generals were just downright incompetent. Others were good, and he wasn't particularly great himself. I mean, he was okay, but he he had a lot of failings as a commander. He didn't. He tended to not give orders, but just to give suggestions, uh, kind of like Robert E. Lee used to do. <laughs> that works great if you've got a talented subordinate, but if you've got a subordinate who's not fully committed to the cause or just not very aggressive, that's not going to work. So, so yeah, highly recommend the Gallipoli TV series if you can get a hold of that. And and then the movie is is also worth watching. And uh, if you want to see a Turkish film, there's one on Netflix, which has English subtitles. It's called Çanakkale 1915. Çanakkale is um, Turkish for Dardanelles. It's spelled C-A-N-A-K-K-A-L-E 1915. There was a movie a few years ago uh, that Russell Crowe starred in and directed called The Water Diviner, um, where it's a father who goes to uh, Turkey in, uh, I think, like the early 1920s to try to find his sons um, because he thinks all three of them died in the battle. 
Uh, it's not very good. That's just my personal opinion. Um, it's his Russell Crowe's directorial debut, the way the actors like to become directors. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it works not so well. I'm of the opinion of the latter half, but if some of you have seen it and you liked it, then I'm, hey, all art is subjective. So that's fine. So a postscript, would you like to describe this, James? Yeah, I'll, I'll take this. Uh, this is not directly connected to the Battle of Gallipoli, but it's it's very important and it kind of takes us through the end of 1915 for the Southeastern Front, we'll call it. So we talked in a previous episode about how the Austrians invaded Serbia and repeatedly got beat, got their <laughs> butts beat by the Serbs and uh, turned tail and had to go back to Austria. The Allies, by this time, there, well, we'll talk about this in the next episode, but there's more pressure on Serbia. And so the Allies wanted to help the Serbs and, again, possibly open up another front. Gallipoli didn't work out, so they were going to try something else. So they wanted to send soldiers to Serbia, but through Greece. So come up from the south. And the uh, problem is, is that Greece was neutral and the Greek government was divided. The king didn't want didn't want to get involved in the war at all. He certainly didn't want to join the Allied side. There's uh, a off and on prime minister named Eleutherios uh, Venizelos, and he does want the Allies to join in. And we'll talk more about that later. But for now, suffice it to say that Allied forces landed in Salonika. This is this is the Greek city of Thessaloniki. It's uh, or Thessalonica. Sometimes it's it's spelled it's. Ancient, ancient city uh, goes all the way back to the Bible. It's mentioned there's two epistles to the Thessalonians. That's the same city we're talking about. So this is October 1915. Allied forces landed in Salonika. There was much political opposition to this in Greece. The prime minister was voted out of office. That was Venizelos. And so Greece wasn't fully buying into this idea, and the, and the Allies were having trouble talking them into it. So they decided to just blockade Greece until they agreed to join the Allies. And that finally happens in June of 1917. Uh, sure, they're happy Allies at that point. Yeah, it's kind of ironic because, you know, Scott and I want to try to give both sides of this story. We don't want to just be rah-rah Allies and, you know, boo on the central powers. Uh at least not all the time. But but the funny thing is, is when the Germans violated Belgium's neutrality in August of 1914, the British and the French cried foul. They, I mean, they just howled about it. How can you violate the neutrality of this country and blah, blah, blah? Well, the thing is, is Greece is neutral and the Allies were perfectly fine with <laughs> violating their neutrality. We're just going to if you don't mind, we're just going to take over one of your cities because <laughs> we need we need the space. OK, Sorry. Anyway, it's just kind of ironic that they, nobody's ever consistent in war like this. Yeah, I wonder what the effects were. It probably crashed the economy, I'm guessing, for Greece. Well, I think it helped it in some ways because they, you know, that they, they had to buy food. You know, they had to buy supplies. So I think some people were certainly in favor of some of the Greeks. But anyway, the Allied troops in Salonika were not able to break through the Bulgarian line. Spoiler alert, Bulgaria is going to join the war on the side of the Central Powers, and they're going to fight against the British and the French uh, and the Serbs. And so the, the Allies are not able to really get far out of Salonika. They're not certainly not able to move very far north and get into Serbia. And so for a long time, they're not able to help out the Serbs. Um, so what was it? There's a quote, and I forget, Scott, I don't know if you've heard this one. I've read this one several times, but I, I didn't write it in the notes. But it, somebody joked that Thessalonica was the largest uh, military encampment in the world or something <laughs> like that. They, they said something else, but it was funnier. But I'll, I'll try to figure that out and, and throw it in later. So this, a second effort to open up a second front fails as well, just like Gallipoli fails, not, not in quite as bloody of a fashion. But so for now, the allies are going to have to accept the fact that there will not be a second front against the central powers. If they're going to win, if they're going to defeat the central powers. They're going to have to do it either on the Western front or on the Russian front, or maybe both. And we'll see if that happens in the next episode. Yeah, and this is a one just other thing here is um, it's interesting that these different sides are both violating neutrality by wanting to go through a nation 
to get to another nation to strike them. You see this happen on both sides. And uh, I'm sure a military historian would know the specific reason for this in World War I. I'm not quite sure. I'm just giving a guess. Um, sometimes these guesses are right. More often than not, they're wrong. But I would say that uh, when it comes to launching a continent-wide war, unlike World War II, you don't have the advantage of military cargo or um, uh, aviation. You don't have uh, air transports. So moving goods, moving men, moving things like that, you have to go directly through people. So ways that you could skip over things and leapfrog that are more possible, although definitely not easy by any means in World War II, aren't in World War I. So perhaps that's something to consider there. But anyway, that's my take on it. I don't know if that's a thing you've heard one way or another. Yeah, yeah. Oh, why not? Okay. Why not? Why not? Yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, hey, could be right, could be wrong. All right. Well, as James said, we're going to... uh, telescope out and we're going to be taking a look at what happens as the war expands even more than its current state. See you then. And we won't come back till it's over, over there, over there. Thanks for listening to the Key Battles of World War I podcast. To get detailed notes of each battle, along with maps and other resources, go to keybattlesofww1 that's one the numeral dot com. Until next time, remember to keep your O3 Springfield clean, avoid trench foot, and show the Hun that you're a son of a gun. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.